1: I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business and other interesting professions. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hi, John. Who's our first guest this week?
2: We might learn how to pronounce
1: Louisville the right way. Yeah, hopefully.
2: (laughs) Our first guest is the co-founder, head brewer of Warwick Farm Brewing a farm-to-glass farm and brewery in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, about 40 miles outside of Philadelphia. Along with Tim Tabor, Tom Tabor, and Scott Says, he converted an old meat processing facility into a seven-barrel brewery and, just seven months ago, opened a 5,000-square-foot taproom. The 22-acre farm provides hops and other ingredients needed to make their award-winning beers.
1: Welcome to the beer hour, Ryan says. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's uh it's a pleasure to have you on.
0: Yeah, thanks for having
1: me. It's, uh you sound uh, crisp and clear on your uh nice uh, microphone you have set up there. Oh my you,
0: fancy microphone set up.
1: Is it I mean, do you is that a mic you use for your music festivals as well?
0: Uh sometimes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: are you you are hosting the music festivals with the with the giant uh tap room that you have now i mean it's uh that's a sweet setup though
0: yeah yeah it's uh yeah we have a fifty five hundred square foot tasting room uh we're known for throwing some big festivals like you said music fest where we had a had a huge uh pretty much like a 30 foot stage um we had Jeez. four bands and it was just a great time
1: nice nice so before beer was your passion th- there was baseball i mean you were drafted by the los angeles angels of, of anaheim how many years did you play minor league ball
0: Uh, So I played two years of minor league ball, and I got drafted in the 17th round. So I was located in um, Utah, Arizona, and then my final year, I was in Iowa.
1: Oh, wow. So where did you – I mean, did you grow up in PA?
0: Yeah, so I grew up uh, about 50 minutes uh, northeast of Philadelphia um, in a town called Perkesey. And uh, I went to um, Christopher Dock uh, High School, and then I went to University of Louisville after that, and then uh, Liberty University.
1: Okay, Okay, real quick. I, I just want to go over this because where did, where did we hear this? I would, you know, because you've asked me this question. How do you pronounce the town that you played college ball at first? <laughs> no, no, go Louisville. ahead. Louisville. I Louisville. can't say it. it. Yeah, because what were we listening to the other day? Was it... Was someone it the, said... No, someone it was said, a podcast. It was it like was
2: Dan LeBetard.
1: No, it, no, no. Actually, I heard it with my dad on the write-up to see my oh, son's football yeah, yeah, game, yeah. and it was Crowder and uh Hawkman. yeah. And he's like, I'll never say it that way. It's always Louisville. I'm like, dude, that is not how you say that name. It's Louisville.
0: It's yeah. It's hard I, hard when I first mean. got there, I said Louisville, and I got corrected right away.
1: You're right. I mean, it's, it's Louisville, not Louisville.
0: Louisville.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah. I, they, hey, this guy's from Philly. I believe And he's him. also saying I it the right way. I believe you
2: guys, <laughs> but don't you understand that there are three languages swimming in my head, so I it's understand. hard for me to pronounce Well, language.
1: I mean, it'd be, at that point, it would be Louisville.
2: Louisville, yeah, en français. Yeah.
1: Okay.
0: I'll tell you, a bigger I'll tell you what qu- I first got. After, like, two years there, I'm saying, like, y'all, and then with my Philadelphia <laughs> accent. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was so weird. Oh, my gosh. The bigger question is, how do you say water? <laughs> uh, water. <laughs> yeah, that's... Water. The, that's the water. Delta. Coffee and water. <laughs> I've always said,
1: and, like, watermelon. <laughs> oh, that that's a Philly thing. That's a definite Philly thing. So, back to, like, your baseball playing days, like... What kind of beer were you guys drinking in the locker room or after games? I mean, you know, like what, what kind of started this whole kind of drive towards craft beer for you? I mean, were you uh, were you guys uh, homebrewing in the locker room or, you know?
0: <laughs> no, we didn't have time for that. Um, but it, it, my interest peaked in college um, after, you know, uh, a long weekend and I had class the next day. Instead of uh, having, you know, Bud Light or whatever, I would actually go to Giant and get pick sixes. Um, And try different beers. But then when we were on the road with Pro Ball, I remember just trying whatever craft beer that they had on draft. And uh, I I found it really interesting. The guys always used to actually make fun of me for getting uh, craft beer instead of uh, like Bud Light or something. (laughs)
1: well i don't think that i mean i'm sure looking hindsight they're like man this guy was ahead of his time you know what i mean but like of course like even when like i was in college and stuff it was like i always look for the better stuff and most people in pittsburgh it was like
2: oh i was gonna say
1: iron Iron city you don't have a
2: lot of choices in pittsburgh do you no (laughs) it was was
1: iron city uh rolling rock out of la trobe and then like it was uh, oh yingling too yeah but like pbr PBR. Like, if you drink PBR or, like, even, like, uh, yingling and stuff, that was a throw above be- besides, like, Beast Ice or, you know, <laughs> Iron City, which Wait, were they horrible.
2: Say, they say iron different? Oh,
1: yes. Yes. I mean, and, and Philly is not like Pittsburgh, and that accent is, like, Yens. I mean, it's completely different. It's, like, <laughs> totally different country. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, you guys start homebrewing. I mean, you yourself start homebrewing with your father, Scott, which which one of you like started brewing first or did you start at the same time?
0: I started right away. So after I got released, um, my wife asked me what I wanted to do with my life, like literally 10 (laughs) minutes after I got released. And (laughs) so um, I just said brewing. So I read uh, John Palmer's How to Brew in like two days. We went and got my homebrew set up and I started brewing at my parents' house, but then after like two months, he saw how interested I was in it. And he helped me out and purchased me like a really nice system. We converted his whole basement. They used to joke it looked like Breaking Bad. Like that's that's (laughs) what it looked like. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: So but yeah, we got a nice system down there. And I just start cranking beers out.
1: So was it at this time that like, obviously, you had this reprieve from baseball, probably something you've played for majority of your younger life and into, you know, some of your uh, adulthood, then all of a sudden, like, you're homebrewing, homebrewing, homebrewing. And you're like, is that when like the light switch went on and you were like, this is what I want to do with my life for the rest of my life?
0: Yeah, I, honestly, I think it was um, after the first the, the first couple of batches, I just had my mind set. I just knew I was going to do it. <clears throat> um, I, I kind of put all that energy that I that I had from baseball and I and I just focused it towards brewing. And it was it was for the best, you know, because it, it's you don't realize at the time, like which you're kind of going through like you play your entire life like yep. 20 20 years pretty much <laughs> yep. I was just I just knew baseball so it was really healthy for me to find something really quick that I could get uh, into
1: yeah I, I think people like especially I mean if you're not involved in athletics and it wasn't a long part of your life you know like you, you look like obviously like what the hell is Tom Brady gonna do once he done with football <laughs> but I mean it's like for any athlete like once you've done that like you've you grew up as a kid doing baseball, middle school baseball, high school baseball, college baseball. And then all of a sudden, like you're in the pros and you've had so much time dedicated to one thing, honing that one skill. And then all of a sudden it's like gone. It's like, what am I now filling this void with? And it was kind of the same yeah. thing for football with me. It was like, OK, what am I going to do now?
0: Yeah, it's it's scary and kind of exciting at the same time. I remember my uncle. Um, telling me that, you know, the world is your oyster now. You know, I could, I could, it, it was super freeing being, being able to know that I could kind of choose my next uh, path in
1: life. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, and obviously you, you chose a great one, you know what I mean? So can you tell me a little bit about Bucks County, Pennsylvania for our listeners who may have never been there? Uh, Cause that is where like your brewery is located.
0: Yeah, so Bucks County, we have about um, six hundred thousand residents in Bucks County, and we're located uh, about we're we're north of Philadelphia. So from our brewery, we can actually see Philadelphia. But um, there's a lot of surrounding counties that are that are uh, big as well. But Bucks County, there's a lot of like really cool like small downtown areas with um, great food, great drinks. Um, there's a railway that runs to all of these little towns, and then there's there's quite a bit of farmland, and then quite a bit of like a lot of suburban area, it's it's a really unique county, and uh, we're thankful to be here. You know, we're right smack dab in the middle. We're in the heart of Bucks County.
1: So, h- how long have you guys been open now?
0: Uh, so we we've been open. November will be our third year, so we're just under three years.
1: So three years ago, how many breweries would would you say were in Bucks County?
0: Oh man, I would. My best guess is twenty five to thirty. Um, now I think there's close to forty. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, and, and I know I know there's already five that are in planning. So it's, right, I it's mean, a lot.
1: And, and that's even growth through the pandemic, which is crazy. You know what I mean? That's yeah. that's crazy. And I think, and I think when you, you were down here for the collaboration and everything, we had talked like at, at Philadelphia, kind of like in the surrounding areas as a whole. I mean, there's there's over a hundred, right?
0: Oh my god, yeah. Uh, I think Philadelphia alone has a hundred, and then Jeez. we have about. 40, I think. And then Montgomery County, which is right next to us, they probably have another uh, 40. So, I mean, closer to 200.
1: Um, That's crazy. Yeah. Man.
0: We're just within, you know, an hour, hour and a half radius. And yeah. then that doesn't even, you know, Pittsburgh has a, a ton. And they're just, Central PA has a, a ton. It's just, I, I don't know how many breweries are in Pennsylvania. I think it's over 400, though.
1: Wow. Wow. And everybody talks about like these other states of like California and, you know, New York, Maine, Colorado, but really, I mean, to me, those kind of numbers for that for Pennsylvania is, like, really shocking to me. I mean, it's...
2: I mean, I remember you telling me that...
1: Uh, oh, San Diego, is that's a different monster. No, man. that
2: Philly was, like, the best craft beer, like, city, like, I, that they I consume per capital. I thought capita. so.
1: I thought so. I thought so. I mean, it, it was, to me, I mean, it was, like, East Coast, for me, it was always Philadelphia as being, like, a beer mecca. And then, obviously, you, yep. have, you have Denver, but, like, whatever. And then, like, you go to San Diego, and, you know, I, I brewed out there with Stone for a very, sh- you know, like, a short stint. But even, like, all the times that I visited, it was just, like, just the amount of, like, 100 be- breweries in Philly is crazy. You know, it's like having 190 breweries in San Diego. I mean, it's nuts to me. I mean, I wish we had yeah, more breweries than think Yeah, and then you, think, yeah. you think
0: Monk's Cafe, you know, I don't know if you're familiar oh, with I do. them.
1: But... Oh, Absolutely. One hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, to me. To I mean, me, they really th- sparked it. I mean, right. They're the ones that sparked it. I mean, they, I mean, they had, you know, Tommy Arthur. They had Lost Abbey. They were I think they were the only place on the East Coast you could get what plenty of the younger and yeah. lost Abbey like ever. Like and that was way back when, like, you know, before, like when that stuff was like those beers were like the it beers to have. And you could only get kegs of draft on the East Coast at Monk's Cafe in Philly. I mean that's unbelievable to me. Yeah. So how did like how did you and Tim Tabor meet? I mean, and or were your dads friends? I mean, how, how did that all come about?
0: Yeah. So uh, our two fathers. So my father's name is Scott, and uh, Timmy's dad's name is Tom, and uh, they were lifelong friends. They've been friends um, since you know middle school, elementary days, and uh, they were going to go into business together for contracting. And my dad decided to go into medical equipment. Um, but, uh, after 30 years, they ended up starting this brewery business together. (laughs) Um, but me and Timmy, um, we were really good friends up until we were about 12 and then baseball kind of got in the way. And then after baseball, it was his 30th birthday party and I brought beer and, uh, Timmy's a phenomenal salesman and the beer was great. So he's like, Hey, why don't we start a brewery? And, uh. Our parents made us do pretty much a year of planning to, to kind of prove to them that we were serious about it and then uh you know eventually they the, the tabor family bought this beautiful piece of property and then uh the business is uh owned by my family and also the tabor family
1: nice so so the tabor family was the one that bought the 22 acres of land specifically to start warwick farm brewing can you tell me about what the the brewery used to be on that that set of land and what was it that hard to acquire the land
0: so, so prior to it, it was a meat processing plant for about fifty years. Wow. Uh, so they 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 would bring the meat in, they would you know process it, and then let the let the meat dry. But I mean, it was a perfect if it wasn't going to be a meat processing, it was going to be a brewery. But they also used to grow corn, maybe seven eight acres worth of corn. And as soon as we saw this property, we knew we wanted it. And it was um, developers were unable to develop it, so it it was like a perfect storm. And we knew right off the bat we didn't want to be we wanted to be something separate to separate ourselves. So we knew we were looking at like a farm property or something with some land. And this, the Tabor family has had their eyes on this property for like five to 10 years wow. prior to this. And okay. it came up in April of 2018 or 2019. And they closed like the second week of May. Like it was like quick.
1: Wow. So can, can you tell me a little bit about the, like your brewing operation? Like what is your setup and how much are you guys brewing out there? Like right now?
0: Yeah, so we have a seven and a half barrel system. Uh, we have 12, 15 barrel tanks, and then we have six sevens. Um, we have plans to replace those sevens with 15s coming up here, which is really exciting. Nice. Uh, we sell everything on site. We don't sell kegs to um, you know distributors or anything like that. So we want the customer to have the freshest beer as possible. And uh, we're, right now we're doing about, um, we'll, we'll hit 3,000 barrels per year this year.
1: That's amazing. And you have plans to obviously, besides upgrade the tanks to larger size, you, are you going to upgrade the, the brew house as well?
0: Yeah. So we have plans within the next three years to get a 30 barrel system in or something around that size. So we're wow. still kind of finalizing that not fine, you know, you know, determining what we're going to, what we're going to do, um, in aspects of that, but we know that we have to get, you know, a bigger brew house, uh, here soon. Cause we're running out of space.
1: <laughs> so down the line, I mean, Obviously, with a bigger brew house and more volume being pumped out, I mean, at some point, do you think you would eclipse what's being consumed on property and then have to move to distribution as well?
0: Um, You know, I don't I'm not sure yet. I I would like to keep everything in house if possible, but we're we're going to more go towards second tasting room location Ah. before we yeah, before we go into distribution. Right. Um and also, like, so we're only open four days a week. So if, if we're able to, I would like to open, you know, seven days a week right. and see how much how much extra barrelage that'll produce as well.
1: Mm, OK, so like what are your what are your guys's operating days as of right now?
0: So right now, uh, we are open Thursday through Sunday, uh, pretty much 12 to 9, all those days. The only exception is Sunday, where it's 12 to 7. But um, our brewing days are Monday through Friday, and, like, this week's been crazy. We've had 11 or 12 batches this week. It's Jeez, been a grind, yeah. <laughs> and we have Oktoberfest tomorrow. So.
1: Oh, my gosh. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, you should move to seven days a week. I mean, what happens if, like, you know, the Eagles have a game on Monday night? You know what I mean? Like, you know, you got to be able to show that at the, at the brewery as well, right?
0: Dude, you don't even know. Eagles games? Come on, and it's a ghost town here.
1: <laughs> uh, well, no, actually, actually, I do, because since football season started, and we have you know the Canes, and we have the Dolphins, right? And the first weekend of opening weekend for both, both were home games. Nobody's here. Till after yeah. the games. <laughs> like, no one's here. Like, you know, so, you know, but then the away games, the place is packed. You know what I mean? But, like, if it's in town... There's nobody here, so I, I can understand that that point of <laughs> back to what yeah. you're going <laughs> from. So, like you know, I know you guys came out the gate swinging with like some some great hazy IPAs that people fell in love with. How have your like beer offerings expanded since you guys first started? And w- like, what's on your tap list nowadays?
0: Yeah, so we we um, production wise, we're about fifty percent hazy IPA. PA. Don't get me wrong. That was what kind of put us on the map. Right. But we are in lager country here in Pennsylvania where Yingling's king. You have trogues too. So we we knew we had to start focusing on lagers. So we focus a lot on uh, Pilsner. Um, we have a Dunkel that's fantastic. And then we also in the summertime, we have Shandy's, which um,
1: you love you love shandy
0: yeah it's, <laughs> dude you <laughs> yes you wouldn't believe how much shandy we go through here it's it's uh it's pretty crazy but then a, a beer style that kind of surprised us was our wit beer um so once we put that on draft, it's it's been our top three seller ever since we opened which was a pleasant surprise to us
1: that's awesome man I mean, and uh
0: right now so like um we have our october fest on draft we have a dunkel we have three to five different hazy ipas and then we always have our irish stout on nitro
1: which is a must-have you got to have irish yeah. stout on nitro have man. to have it have to have that and uh, i mean are, are you running shandies year round
0: uh so we actually um next week so this is uh this is a drop here uh, uh we're releasing an apple crisp
1: oh shandy. you're going into fall season you're doing apple shandy that's amazing got dude. To. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cinnamon <laughs> sticks and apple cider and that's uh, awesome yeah, it it came out fantastic. I'm really excited about That's it.
1: That's awesome, uh, Maria. I, I know Maria would be excited about a uh, an apple cinnamon shandy.
2: A more basic than that. Uh,
1: pumpkin spice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen,
2: I am a, a Miami girl, born and bred. We don't pick apples here. We have to pick oranges, which. <clears throat> Who wants to pick orange. So
1: you want to get into fall season with your Uggs and your pumpkin spice? No, no,
0: I don't have Uggs. <laughs> That's stupid. But not down there in Miami.
1: No, no, no. <laughs>
2: no, Let me tell you, it dips to like 60, 60. and yeah. the girls oh, wear man. like beanies hey, They get their,
1: and Uggs. Uh, their triple down goose jackets on. Oh, it's on, ridiculous. You
2: know I mean? It's so ridiculous. <laughs> not saying that I'm not cold, but I'm not wearing Uggs either. That's
1: dumb. Oh, man. So, I mean... So we know about the brewing side of things. like what about the farm component? like do you guys what do you guys grow out there? I mean, what are your plans of growing? like what is that side of the the business? So
0: we have an acre worth of hops that we we harvested um three weeks ago. They did fantastic this year. um we have we want to put a fruit orchard here as well. so we're thinking something that grows well, you know, apples or um, peaches should grow pretty well here. Um, so that's in the plans. Uh, we're, we're going to see what we can do with that, but we do have plans to expand our hop yard. Um, we, we use a hundred percent of the hops that are, that we grow here, which is pretty neat. That's amazing. And, uh, actually the beer it's called Jay and the hop Vine. Um, it, uh, it's all of our fresh hops and it just came out this week and it's, and it's crazy. It changes from year to year because of the seasons and you know, how, how well they grow. So, uh, this year it's like super great fruit flavored.
1: Nice. That's awesome, man. So, and I would assume, I mean, like most areas like in this like middle to lower, you know, East Coast, like it's mostly sea hops you guys are growing.
0: Yeah, so we have Centennial, Comet, Chinook, and Cascade. And and the Comets and Comet wow. and Chinook did the best this year.
1: Nice. That's that should be an awesome uh, fresh hop beer for sure. So, another big thing was like last February you guys opened a new 5,000 square foot tap room with 24 taps you know a beautiful fireplace how have people in the area reacted to the new space and to finally having a beautiful place to enjoy your beers and like you know also great. the reception has
0: been amazing (laughs) yeah it's been amazing it's because people have been waiting waiting for this for for two years uh you know we were just doing takeout for the first two years and when when february hit we didn't know what to expect and it's it's just the reception has been great the customers have been fantastic And uh, everybody's been responsible on the 22 acre farm that we have here. You know, we have we've had very minimal issues and uh, it's really nice to be able to have reception with our customers based upon, you know, the beers that they like and that they might not like. And that's been really encouraging. And I think it's I think it's really helped us out kind of honing in on what beers we want to focus on going forward.
1: That's awesome, man. So it seems like you guys have everything kind of planned and mapped out. But like, I think you kind of touched on it, but what's next for you guys, man?
0: Yeah, so next for us, um, you know, we we definitely want a second location. Um, we kind of have an idea of where we would like that to be, but we need to figure out production and how we're going to be able to supply that first. But that's uh, we're probably going to plan that next year and then the following year, get really serious about it. Um, we have plans for a bigger brew house uh, within the, within a three-year window here. And also, we're going to start introducing more barrel aged beers. Um, We're going to be introducing a seltzer here when my recipe gets approved by the um, TTB. But, um, you know, possibly down the future, spirits is a possibility along with RTDs. Awesome.
2: Hey, Ryan, can you tell us about your Oktoberfest event tomorrow?
0: Yeah. So, tomorrow we are throwing our uh, second annual Oktoberfest. We're going to have polka music and we have. uh, I know. some john candy yeah (laughs) exactly
2: there you go you got the Uh, reference
0: yeah and uh so we're gonna have um other half here and also trogues beer so they have both of their fest beers and you know uh you know wear your german outfits and stuff it's gonna be a great time so we're expecting a huge crowd it's gonna run from 12 to about seven or eight tomorrow
2: and you've got steins i imagine
0: oh yeah yep. (laughs) all the steins
1: that is awesome so i kind of got one last thing for clarification here with Maria, with our collaboration and, and the name that we chose, C- can you explain what going yard means?
0: <laughs> it means a home run, and if you go yard, it's a bomb. It's not just like thank you three hundred sixty feet. It's like a over four hundred foot bomb.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody, look, you know, I was in co- you know conversation with you via text, and uh, you know the name kind of came to me. I'm mean, like, you know, what about going yard? Because, you know, your baseball background and obviously my knowledge is somewhat of baseball, but like everybody looked at me and goes, What does going yard mean? I have no idea what that means.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a home run. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a bomb. It's, uh, it's out of the park.
0: Whatever. It's out I, of the park. Yeah.
2: I was able to execute the label properly. So <laughs> you'll be happy with the label, Ryan.
0: <laughs> oh, good. Another one you could have done is so I was I was known for hitting the ball the other way. Apo Taco is a cool name too. Apo oh, Taco, that
1: should
2: be that what does that be the mean? Other one.
0: It means heard. an opposite. If I'm a right hander, I hit it to right field. It's an opposite field home run. Ah. So they, we used to call it Apo Taco.
1: Maybe that should be the the one up there.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I like that.
1: Apo Taco. <laughs> well thank you very much for your time brother and uh thanks ryan have a have a awesome time with Oktoberfest, and uh we'll be seeing you soon man
0: yeah man i appreciate thanks for having me on
1: anytime anytime
0: you're listening to the beer hour with jonathan wakefield conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture
2: my next guest was the president of the florida miami marlins baseball club from 2002 until 2017 Prior to that, he was the executive vice president of the Montreal Expos. In 2003, on his watch, the Marlins won their second world championship, upsetting the mighty Yankees in six games. Later, he was instrumental in brokering a deal for a new ballpark for the rebranded Miami Marlins. Known for his direct and opinionated communication style, he now hosts a highly entertaining and extremely popular podcast called Nothing Personal.
1: Welcome to the Beer Hour, David Sampson. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is an uh, absolute pleasure to have you on.
3: It's my pleasure to be here. When I got the invite, there was no way I'd say no to a brewer <laughs> in Wynwood. No yeah. doubt about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even if it's just for the free six-pack There you go. There you way. go.
1: There you go. Absolutely. And we've been here pretty much for eight years now. So before it all started trending to this very uh, upscale you know more modern uh neighborhood we were here for the uh the grit and the grime but it's uh it's been a good journey you know
3: you could have been a brewer right next to the ballpark i don't know if you're aware of that
1: well i know that but that that was uh nightlife nightlife yeah
3: they actually
2: closed recently yeah dave yeah
3: john henry was wanted to was offered a ballpark right in winwood way before i got to florida and uh, he said, Wynwood will never be anything. Ooh! So he did not want to have a ballpark in Wynwood.
1: Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, uh, yeah, certain people had a uh, definite foresight for this, uh, this neighborhood to become what it is now. So you're a father with three kids kind of like me. So I, I'm going to kind of start with a, a nature versus nurture question. You were born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but moved to New York City at, a, at like a young age. It seems like you have a New Yorker's edge. Do you think it would be a different person, like you would be a different person had you stayed in Wisconsin throughout your entire childhood?
3: Well, it's interesting because the only reason I moved to New York is that my parents got divorced, Ah. and it was the first ever settlement in Wisconsin history where the mother was able to take the children out of state. And the... Way the judge allowed it, and I was four years old, is I had to go back to Milwaukee every time there was a day off from school. Whoa! So every long weekend, I was on a plane to Milwaukee with my older sister. So that means certainly every summer. So I spent a ton of time in Wisconsin, and I went to the University of Wisconsin. Wow. So I really consider my – I went to camp and everything. So I love Wisconsin. I am a Milwaukee guy. Uh, shockingly, I don't drink as much beer as you'd imagine having been in baseball <laughs> and yeah. Milwaukee, which is sort of strange.
1: That's a but That's a beer town for sure.
3: It, it's, oh, that is, they, that and, uh, and, and baseball are the two places where I think beer are just, it's part of the fabric. But for me, I don't consider myself a New Yorker or a Milwaukeean. I just consider myself me. So I assume it's more <laughs> um, nurture than it is nature, okay. although I don't feel as though I was very well nurtured.
1: Ah, So you were basically an advisor at Morgan Stanley Un- until then, you know, your stepfather, Jeffrey Loria purchased an ownership stake and became a chairman, CEO, managing general partner of the Montreal Expos, Mm -hmm. you became the executive vice president. Was baseball something that you were passionate about up to that point, or was it more like a really cool career opportunity?
3: So actually, I'm going to say D, none of the above. (laughs) My story there is I was on Wall Street and working at Morgan Stanley. And if you've ever seen the movie Wolf of Wall Street, Mm -hmm basically that was my life except there was no margot robbie and there was no cocaine and there was no midget tossing other than that <laughs> it was exactly like that and i loved every minute of it and i got a call from jeffrey Loria, who at the time was married to my mother right. who asked me whether i would help him he wanted to buy the expos and i said i'm happy to help you and be the banker on the deal and i'll work with your lawyer here's my daily rate I'm happy to do it. And so I worked on that for several months. I got the deal done. And then he asked me to work for the team for 30 days just to help with the transition. And I said, I'm happy to do that. Here's the rate. And I was going to go back to Morgan Stanley. And then I got the dreaded Jewish mother call. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, it's the worst. When the (laughs) call comes and says, David, you have to help Jeffrey. Would you be willing to move to Montreal and work oh my for the gosh. team full-time? Oh, my god! And I said, well, I'm going to need a lawyer. <laughs> so right. got a lawyer and negotiated a deal because I was not going to take a pay cut by any stretch. Right. And uh, I ended up going to Montreal and spending two years there running that team for him and then helping him sell the Expos and buy the Marlins in a very famous, crazy three-way transaction uh, in 2002 that had us end up in florida
2: how long did uh how long before you realized that you actually had a knack for running a baseball club
3: you know i i I think if you ask enough people in miami they would tell you that i should never have realized that uh (laughs) because i don't have that knack uh we won one world series in miami we got a ballpark built and we got you guys Derek jeter for a minute and a half but uh I never viewed running a baseball team differently than running any other business. And I had run a business before on my own. I had been in a big corporate atmosphere on wall street and I never, uh, I never was a baseball person. You know, the Yankees were fine growing up, but uh, I was always a big New York Knicks fan, but I wanted to be the point guard for the Knicks. I didn't want to be the president of the Knicks. (laughs) And uh, you know, it's too bad my mother smoked because absent that, I would not be five five, and I would have been playing for the Knicks maybe we go. right now. There we
1: go. Okay. Okay. But
3: uh, what a bad day when you realize that you have a better chance to own the team than to play on the team, right? I remember <laughs> that day very, very well, uh-huh. and uh, that day sucked actually. But all of that said, I was not a big baseball fan, and I and I ran the team better because of that because right. it didn't interest me to sit there and you know I didn't go gaga over the players. Uh, which many people do when they're in sports. And for me, it was not emotional at all. It was pretty robotic running. It's a regular business, as many people know, listening to this. There's accounts receivable, accounts payable, sales, marketing, finance, human resources, budgets, audits. It's really, uh, you know, the product we have is baseball. But other than that, it's a business.
1: Yeah, I would say so. So really, I mean, your knack was that there was no sentimental attachment. To the players, to the club, to anything. So it was really more site on, like running it as a business, versus some of these guys that are very attached to players and to the brand and to, the,
3: to and, the club. And that's one of the biggest. That's one of the biggest things that happens when people get into sports. It's funny. So many people over my 18 years. I'm talking about thousands of of people of every age. I want to be in sports. I want to work in sports. It must be the greatest thing in the world. And so the first thing I'll say is, well, have you applied? And they'll say no. So I'll say it's sort of difficult to work for a company if you don't apply. But then I would say 98% of the people who say they want to work in sports, about four months into working in sports, they leave of their own accord even before I have a chance to fire them. Because they think it's going to be about catching foul balls and getting autographs, <laughs> and it's it's not that way at all. It's you. It's a it's a nine to five job at a minimum. Not only for some of the people, for many people, it's way more hours than that, and it's not a lot of um, it's not a lot of money. And the reason it's not is there's so much demand for the jobs that I could get rid of person x in the chair and replace them with person y in two minutes at a lower salary wow so there's not a lot of leverage when you're negotiating your your salary or your bonus or your rate so people end up not being as excited as they thought they'd be because it's hard work and it's a business
2: it's kind of like the brewing industry and the (laughs) restaurant industry you know people see it glamorized
3: but really it's not but it's it's not hard as shit
1: yeah so uh, no emotional attachment aside can you, like, take us back to the evening of October 25th, 2003. The upstart Florida Marlins are playing Joe Torre's New York Yankees in Game 6 of the World Series. You're sitting in old Yankee Stadium, not far from where you went to elementary school in the Bronx. What is going through your mind as Josh Beckett tagged out Jorge Posada for the final out?
3: I've done so many interviews about this, and no one's asked me that exact question about what, what's been, what was going through my mind uh, when Beckett tagged him out. Right. So, wow, I love that. I, and, and I have an answer uh, to exactly what was going on in my mind, and it's the craziest thought I had, which is we have to plan a parade. <laughs> and I went right into, like, the logistics oh, sh- of what would have to happen now. We have to design World Series rings. This, this implicates our uniforms next year because we're going to have a world championship patch we have to design a logo that we are world series champions then we have to figure out how to sell this and make money from winning the world series and all that was going on and i am being slightly misleading to you because that's about a second after the actual tag and here's why i was sitting behind right to the outfield side of the third base dugout right And the play happened on the first baseline with Beckett tagging out Posada. And I'm 5'5". Everybody's standing up. I couldn't see exactly whether or not the play had been made and the out had been called by the umpire. So I was looking not at Beckett tagging Posada, but I was looking at our third baseman and our left fielder to see what they were doing. Because if they were running in like this then I was going to be jumping up and hugging. If they were going back to their position, then there was still another batter to be had. So that was going on at the exact second of the wow. tag would be the most accurate answer. Wow, that
1: is awesome. That is uh, that is quite an answer. So, I mean, at least forthright being, you know, that you know you were actually looking elsewhere to see what kind of reaction other people were having <laughs> to the current situation. I see. I know. <laughs> So, I mean, very few people in the history of baseball have been involved in two new stadium acquisition situations in two different countries, like no less. The first, you saw a new ballpark in Montreal for the Expos. It didn't happen, so the team was sold to the MLB owners and moved to to Washington. The second time here in Miami, you were successful at brokering a deal to build what's now known as Lone Depot Park. You've made some comments about the controversy over building a soccer stadium multi-use mega project for the MLS Inter-Miami team. Where do you kind of stand now? Should taxpayer dollars be used to fund new stadiums and arenas for sports teams owned by
3: billionaires? Oh, God, that's a loaded question, right? Like uh, you had to throw in for billionaires? Well, I mean, like just in case. I mean, well, Did well, I mean, Billy Corbin write that for you? <laughs> <laughs> like, who's your, who's your writer for that question? Rocco, Rocco, Rocco. We got Rocco here, you know. No, Rocco, I appreciate that question, but I'm going to push back on a few few things. Okay. David, so if you can...
0: run for office one day, you know you're going to get this question, right? Yeah. If you run for political uh, I... office.
3: <laughs> Let's just say that um, I don't need to go far on Halloween to access the skeletons that are right inside that closet door. So I do not think that I shall be running for office anytime soon. Right. But thank you for asking. No, so let me push back and say one thing. The money that was used to get Marlins Park built was a combination of money from the owner, about 33 or 34%, and then about 66% or 67% of money that is set aside by Miami. For the sole purpose, legislatively, for the sole purpose of building and helping build ballpark stadiums or convention centers. It was not money that could be used for firemen or police or teachers. By definition, by law, it had to be used. We did not raise taxes by a penny. We did not start a new tax like a ballpark district. We just used existing revenue as part of the public contribution. Correct. That's point one. Point two, the government's job is to decide on behalf of their constituents, which they sometimes do and sometimes don't, what they are going to invest in, whether it's going to be sports teams or whether it's going to be infrastructure or a high line or a low line, right, different areas or different things, whether it's going to be redeveloping Winwood, whatever right. the case is going to be. Governments make decisions. And for whatever reason, cities like having professional sports teams. Absolutely. And when they lose sports teams, they're willing to spend triple to get them back. Yep. So I had all the leverage. I knew Miami didn't want to lose the Marlins, right. and I knew that if they did, they wanted to be considered a big league city, and they would spend triple just to try to get a new baseball team, which is what Montreal's doing, which is what Seattle's doing trying to get a basketball team yep. back, yep. and I can go on and on. So I think that it's – I'm not saying that I agree or disagree – But I am telling you, that's the government's job. Our elected officials make decisions on our behalf, and if we don't like them, vote them out. People recalled the mayor after the Marlins deal, but they also elected the mayor when he had said he was in favor of Marlins Park. (laughs) So it really, it goes both ways. And as far as Inter-Miami, all I want now is for people to be educated. And that was why I worked with Billy Corbin on that Inter-Miami commercial that went viral. And the reason I want people to be educated is from my battle scars with Marlins Park, where people would have an opinion without any basis for that opinion. So anytime you can learn something, I want to be there to help teach it.
1: Nice. Okay. I completely uh, understand that point. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if...
2: Didn't we vote on that?
1: I thought we did. But, I mean, even being so, MLS, I mean, this is America. And I mean, soccer is on the rise, but it's in no way, shape or form anything like any of the, you know, English, you know, the Premier League, uh, La Liga, anything like that. You're not going to get that attendance here. So dumping that amount of money into a ballpark, I don't know if it business wise makes a lot of sense. You know what I mean?
3: Remember, they're saying that, that's, uh, that that ballpark, that soccer stadium is going to be privately funded. Of course, that's not true. There's no. public money going no. into the development. Right. It's a total real estate transaction. That's all it is. Yep. Soccer is just what is the shoehorn they're using yes. to fit in all of the other development they want to do that Jorge Mas wants to do. Yep. But I'll tell you, I worry about the soccer stadium just as I worry about Lone Depot Park. Yep. Uh, attendance has not been. Everyone said it was my fault that people didn't go to Marlins games. No. Well, I've been gone for five years, and the same thing is still happening, and now there's no more Jeter to blame me. But you you notice the new people who are running the Marlins, they don't talk about me anymore because it's so long ago right. that even fans who want to hate me still recognize that I have nothing to do with the results on the field or right. the attendance anymore at all.
1: Well, I was going to kind of lead into that and into the next question was like, Let's talk about the current state of baseball. I mean, according to data from a number of sources, uh, average attendance is down 5% from 2019. Television viewership is down 12% from 2019 and and 2021. But average opening day salary is up 5.9% to like $4.41 million this year. I mean, is this a sustainable business model in your opinion?
3: So more teams are losing money than than you'll believe, and that's why there was a lockout uh, before the season started. Let me tell you the secret of attendance. Uh, I made up the attendance every single day. Oh. So just so you know, and uh, other teams do too. Right. Shh. Don't tell anyone that. <laughs> but now, Rob Manford does not have the same view, the current commissioner, as the Previous commissioner, Bud Selig, wanted to set an attendance record every year. Right. So he wanted to make sure the team's attendance was going up, and he would do whatever it took to make sure that happened. If your team was not drawing well, he would call you up and say, do better, figure out a new way. So I said, I've got a new way. I'm going to make up the number. (laughs) And that'll work. Yes. So once you stop making up the number, the numbers start going down. So if you really only count – real butts in the seats, that's why you're seeing a decrease because you are seeing not fewer people, in my opinion, as I look around the league. You're just seeing a more true count. Uh, But revenue in the league continues to go up. So the math is this. If you can get one person in your ballpark to pay $100 and to get 100 people in your ballpark, they're only willing to pay a dollar each, which do you do? And from a business standpoint, you take the one person at 100 because there's fewer resources you need to control that one person in terms of security, in terms of concession stands. You name it, the expense for the 100 people at a dollar is greater than the one person at 100, and the ticket revenue is the same. So you have to look at average ticket price. You have to look at gate revenue for each club, not attendance. That's not the bell mark for whether or not the sport's healthy.
1: Okay, okay. Understandable. I mean, I completely follow that. Right. You know, so much less needed for that one person spending 100 versus 100 spending one, you know. And I had a question. So if you were commissioner of baseball, how would you kind of begin to fix the sport besides the uh, this updated thing of uh, a pitch clock now where you have 15 seconds with nobody on base and I think 20 seconds with runners on base, which is going to speed up the sport entirely.
3: So they say, right? Right. So I was on something called the competition committee, which was not the current one that was constituted under the most recent collective bargain agreement that included players and an umpire. I was on the competition committee that was just presidents and owners when I was uh, toward the end of my career. So for – two, three, or four years. I can't remember the term I served. And we were trying to find a way to increase the pace of action, right. not to decrease game times, right? That was never the goal. Let's play games in two hours and 40 minutes instead of three hours and 10 minutes. The goal was, if the games are going to be three let's have some stuff happen, right. right? Instead of just strikeouts and walks and everyone getting down on the knob, trying to hit home runs. So my theory always was, it's not about pitch clocks and it's not about defensive shifts or banning the shift or anything like that. It's about how players get paid. Players right now are paid for power. The more home runs you hit, the more money you get paid. So if you're an agent and what do you tell your client hit home runs, hit home runs. Imagine if we change the commission structure, like in your, in your business, right? when you give a commission structure to your salespeople, They are going to sell that which will make them the most money. Correct. And you're going to come up with a commission structure that will motivate them to sell the product you want them to sell. So you'll do a special deal if there's a new kind of beer that you want out there. Correct. You'll give them a higher rip, a higher commission rate on that. My view was what if we deduct salary from players who strike out? Ooh. What if we give raises to players who hit doubles and triples?
1: Ooh, okay.
3: What if home runs are not the thing that gets players paid solely, but we change? Then players will say, well, wait a minute. If I'm going to lose, and I'm making up numbers, if I'm going to lose $1,000 every time I strike out, you damn well better believe I'm going to choke up with two strikes, I'm going to shorten my swing, and I'm going to try to go the other way. Yep. But if I'm not going to get any money taken out of my pocket, then I might as well just do the one thing that will get me money in my pocket, which is the home run, without the concomitant deduction of the strikeout. Wow. So I went for that, and um, guess what? No. I I couldn't get one vote. Jeez. But I liked it.
1: Yeah, I liked that idea, actually. I mean, you're actually creating more runs, more action, you know, because the disparity between home runs and strikeouts and then just singles, doubles, triples is few and far between. And it's it motivation to make more money. Yeah, it's action. Absolutely, it's action. Yeah, I mean. Try. I had
3: another one. What do you think of this one? I wanted to change the batting order in the ninth inning so that the <laughs> team that's down, any team that's losing, can put anyone up at the plate they want any number of times. You still get three outs, right. but here's, here's the example. If the Yankees are down a run in the ninth, I bet the fans, everyone would stay until the ninth in a close game if they knew that they could see Aaron Judge hit three straight times. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: So I, I know lately like you've turned your attention to podcasting. Can, can you tell us about your daily podcast, Nothing Personal? How did it come about? And can you describe the podcast to our listeners?
3: Sure. So once Derek Jeter fired me via text, (laughs) I, I said, all right, that'll do it for that. That was a good run. On to the next. Right. And I love the feeling of discomfort in your stomach when you don't know exactly what you're going to be doing. or You're doing something different that you're not used to doing. So I knew that I love to talk. And if I can get paid to talk, that seems like a perfect gig for me. So I went and hired an agent at UTA. And I said, I'm David Sampson. Uh, We're going to have to repopulate my Google because people in Miami don't like me. But I'd like to get paid to talk. And I got a job with CBS as an analyst for Major League Baseball. And a few months later, they came to me, the powers that be, and said, would you like your own show? And I said, yes, I would. Nice. And I was able to choose my own producer. And he came up with the title because I knew what I wanted it to be. I want it to be a show five days a week, no guests, no callers, 45 minutes of me giving a speech basically, 45 <laughs> minutes a day about sports, culture, entertainment, politics. I want it to be funny but educational, right. interesting but not, not in any way preachy, okay. and I want it to have full editorial control. I do a pick of the day, so there's a gambling part of the show. Oh, okay. So, no, there's enough content to do twice as, as long. And, and one day I may go to two 45-minute shows, Oof. but uh, not today.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, baseball playoffs are just around the corner. Who do you think is going to be lifting the Commissioner's Trophy this fall? Do you have a dark horse team, kind of like the uh, 2003 Marlins?
3: Well, first of all, come on.
1: I know. The I know. They were not a dark Marlins. horse. I know.
3: They had the best record in baseball. A Phillies from May fan 31st. wrote this question.
2: Yeah. Sorry, David.
3: <laughs> yeah. no, 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 I'm totally good with it, but I, you know, it's funny. I've spoken to Derek Jeter about this where he's all angry that they didn't win. They should have been underdogs. We were a better team than they were, but we're the Marlins, right? right. who had won in ninety seven. It's not the Yankees, so everyone just assumes they're the underdog. But for me, before the season started, I predicted that the Braves would win the World Series because there had not been a team to defend since the Yankees in 98, 99, and 2000 when they won three in a row. And I think the Braves have what it takes to defend their World Series title and be the first team to do it. So I picked them preseason, and I'm not going to change my pick now. They're really, really good. Now, they haven't quite caught the Mets yet. They may. But at the end of the day, in a series when you've got a team that's hungry to win it again and you've got some rookies like the Braves do, some veterans like the Braves do, they've got all of the ingredients to win a World Series. However, there's a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of two-out RBIs that have to happen. There's a lot of fly balls that have to be hit to someone instead of in the gap. So it's very hard to predict. So I got one last question for you, Dave.
1: What do you think your legacy will be in the business
3: of sports? So I call those obit moments, right? When you go through something and you say to yourself, "Wow, that's going to be in your obituary." <laughs> right. So I think you know the legacy in the business of sports. I think is different than the legacy of me personally as a as a uh, as a, as David, right? right? So people know they think you know you you get this, I'm sure, right? You see you enough or listen to you enough. Then when they meet you, they assume they know you. I think that in business, the legacy is that I'm going to work harder than everybody else to get a deal that I want to get done, and I'm going to make sure that I don't ever get no. Right? I'm going to keep going and be persistent to the point of night sweats until I accomplish what I want to accomplish, and I'm going to be a little bit like Hamilton in that I'm never going to be satisfied. I'm never going to rest on my laurels. I was definitely born on third base, but I never thought I hit a triple, and I've spent the rest of my life trying to steal home, and that's really what I do, and I love it. I'm not embarrassed of how I got into baseball. I'm not ashamed of the concept of nepotism. Uh, You have to earn it, and you have to keep earning it because at the end of the day, the reality is that if you don't earn it, you're going to get fired because there's billions of dollars at stake. And so I spend my life trying to earn it, And um, I always want more and more and more. And there's a negative to that, of course, course. never being satisfied. But I think that's what my legacy will be.
1: That is amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate you taking your time out of your day to come on the show and and talk with us. It's been uh, an amazing, amazing time for sure. Thank you. I
3: appreciate it. Forward my address for all the beer you're going to send. I will send you Uh, a box.
1: Absolutely. Thank you again, Dave. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guest, Ryan Sez and David Sampson, our co-host Maria Cabre, our producer Rocco Riggio, and our editor Brian O'Connell. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. And remember people, the thirst is real.